like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30, and this morning we'll be focusing to begin with on verses 7 through 9 of Proverbs 30, but we'll be looking at many other verses from the book of Proverbs. Hear God's word. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So, eggs, butter, salt, coffee. Are these things good for you or aren't they? That's, that's what I'm hearing. And, and, you know, for my whole adult life at least, if not most of my life in general, I've been hearing that these things are bad for me. And I, I've been eating massive quantities of them. It never stopped me, but I've been feeling bad about it all these years. And now the experts tell me that all these things are actually good. I have to reinterpret all these guilty feelings I've been having all these years. It seems like these days there are more rules about what to eat and what not to eat than we've ever had before. It's so confusing, and they keep changing the rules. It all makes me go think back to probably the best advice, practically speaking, that ever came out of Aristotle's writings or teachings. He said, moderation in all things. I think if you could just follow that rule in eating whatever you eat, it would take care of a lot of the problems, not all of them, but a lot of them. Because really, you know, I think we want to think about all these rules about how to eat and not to eat because we want to get the focus off of where the problem really is. It's not in the food, by and large. It's largely within us. And so when you think of food as a blessing from God that in many ways has become a curse in our lives, it helps you to understand what the Bible teaches about wealth. Because wealth is very much in the same category. Matter of fact, when you read about wealth and how we are to view wealth in our lives, you can end up just as confused as you are reading all the food magazines and the latest headlines and experts' opinions. Because you can read some parts of scripture and you read about wealth and it's treated like this great blessing and a, and a wonderful thing for us. But you read other parts of scripture and you walk away saying, wow, wealth is evil, wealth is bad, I should stay away from it. Well, which is it? Well, both and, not either or. And that's what you see in the book of Proverbs. We're going to begin looking at some of the individual, we think of the Proverbs as those little pithy statements, those little one verse or two or three verse type uh, statements of God's wisdom, wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord that we've been talking about in Proverbs. And we're starting the section from 10 through chapter 31, which is kind of all over the map when you try to read through it sequentially, but we're going to look at them topically. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a, a, a topic like wealth, which is such an important issue in life. How do we deal with wealth in life? 
and we're going to look at what the, we're going to try to do like an overview and say what does the entire book of Proverbs say about wealth and what was interesting is as you start to break down what are the repeated topics in all these individual Proverbs when you get the list of what these repeated topics are they're some of the biggest issues we face day in and day out you can see that ambivalence you know wealth is it a good thing or is it a bad thing is it a blessing or is it a curse you can see that ambivalence actually in this prayer that I just read from chapter 30 chapter 30 has the title that it came from a wise man named Agur and Agur offers a prayer right here in the middle of the chapter and what's interesting is this is the only prayer in the entire book of Proverbs Proverbs is not a prayer book that's not its intention but it has this one prayer and I'm fascinated that the one prayer of the Proverbs is this one he says to the Lord Agur says Give me neither poverty nor riches. Interesting prayer. I'm sure that every one of you, at some point in your life, probably many points in your life, has said to the Lord, Lord, please keep me from being poor. How many of you have ever prayed, Lord, keep me from being rich? Have you ever prayed that prayer? Lord, please don't make me rich? I think it does say something about the state of our hearts that we pray often Lord don't make me poor we almost never or never pray Lord don't make me rich but Agur the wise man walking in the fear of the Lord says Lord please don't make me poor but don't make me rich either just provide for me what I need to eat today provide for me what the Bible calls my daily bread The book of Proverbs says a lot about how we treat our money and our possessions. Matter of fact, the prophets of the Old Testament tell us a lot about how to treat our money and possessions. So did Moses in the law. So did Jesus in his teachings. So did the apostles in the epistles of the New Testament. It's really a big issue because it's so close to where our heart is before God. Proverbs, as we said the last couple of weeks, Proverbs is God's wisdom for our daily choices. It's based in a knowledge of God's will in his word, but it's really not just knowledge of God's word, but it's applying God's word to life as you make the different choices, as you make the thousands of choices you make in any given day or week. And so how do we apply that to wealth, the money and the possessions in our life? How should we view our wealth? Well, to begin with, what's interesting is you go through the book of Proverbs and scripture in general, but particularly in Proverbs, is that you see that there are only two types of people when it comes to money and possessions in, in God's eyes. You're either poor or you're wealthy. And the dividing line between the poor and wealthy is this concept of daily bread. And daily bread, as you go through scripture, you start to understand that what daily bread is really having food, shelter and clothing basically having your basic needs met your physical needs so that you can live your life as God has called you to live in this world so if you have food on your table every day and if you have clothing on your back and you have shelter over your head you have your daily bread and so that's the dividing line between the poor and the wealthy so if you have less than that you're poor if you have more than that you're wealthy in other words you all are wealthy we tend not to think that way, do we? Matter of fact, in American culture, 
kind of fascinated. Like we, we come up with at least three categories, actually a lot more, but at least three categories. You've got the poor, and you've got the wealthy, and then you have this massive humanity in between called the middle class. Now, why do we do that? Why do we want to have this middle gray area between poor and wealthy that the Bible doesn't have? Well, it's because so that the vast majority of us can put ourselves in that category of middle class so that we can ignore everything the Bible says about the wealthy. <laughs> See, when the Bible talks about the wealthy, it's talking to those people on the other side of town that live in the big houses and, you know, don't have some of the needs that I have. That, you know, so I sure hope they're listening to what God's word has to say all those wealthy people. But when we realize that the Bible only divides between poor and wealthy and the dividing line is daily bread, every single one of us is wealthy according to scripture. So I have to make that point because everything I say from here on to the wealthy applies to every one of you. So make sure you're listening. This is what God's word has to say to those who are wealthy. So how should you view your wealth? How should you view whatever God has placed in your hands that is above daily bread? Well, what we're going to find is that Proverbs, like the rest of Scripture, says that this wealth is both a very positive thing and a very negative thing. First of all, positively, your wealth is a blessing from God. And it's a reward from God. That's a very consistent scriptural teaching, and certainly here in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, says, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. You're wealthy because God has blessed you. And his intention is for you to enjoy the wealth as a blessing, and his intention is not to add sorrow with it, that the sorrow doesn't come from him. It comes from within us and others. James, in, first in his first chapter, says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And so when you are given wealth, in a sense you have to to, to reprogram your thinking from that American concept that everything you have, you've, you know, it's yours, you've worked hard, you deserve it, you've earned it. Ultimately, it's God's blessing. He determines how much wealth you're going to have. He gives you every good thing in your life, and he de determines your allotment in life. And the Bible talks a lot about the allotment that God has given to each one of us. We're gonna t as, you know, I'll say in a moment, there is an aspect of reward to wealth, but initially, just think about how many factors in your life determine how many earthly goods, in terms of money and possessions, how many factors in your life you didn't choose. What country you were born in. What part of the country you were born in. What side of the tracks you were born on. Who your parents were. How stable was your home. These are things, many of these things, that God placed you there. And so the blessings you enjoy clearly speak to his allotment, his sovereignty in your life. And so acknowledge that, that whatever wealth you have largely is determined, well, ultimately is determined by God's sovereignty, but so many of those things you didn't even have a choice in. But there is a reward element that the Bible talks about when it comes to wealth. Proverbs 22, verses 2 and 4 say, The rich and poor meet together, the Lord is maker of them all. So there's that point of God's sovereignty but goes on to say the reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. The Bible gives us many examples of faithful men and women of God who served faithfully and God rewarded their faithfulness 
with wealth. You think of men like Abraham or David or even the one the author of so many of these Proverbs that we're studying, Solomon himself. Well, this is probably a good point to make. I need to make a point about how to interpret the book of Proverbs. You'll hear me make it here, but you'll hear me make it several other times as we go through our study that the Proverbs are not promises by and large. You have to understand that. And people misinterpret Proverbs because they take them as promises. They're not intended to be promises or guarantees. What they are are godly observations. Observations of what life is like from God's perspective. They're godly observations. They're truisms. Things that are true as you view life in a fallen world. And so what Agur, you know, or actually what the, the, and the other writers of Proverbs are saying is, generally speaking, that if you live your life in humility and you live your life in the fear of the Lord, you're going to be rewarded with riches and honor from God's perspective. That's generally how life works. Doesn't work that way every time by any stretch of the imagination. That's why we have books like the book of Job. That's why we have Psalms like Psalm 73 where the author of the Psalm says, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Life, this world is broken. It's a fallen world. So it isn't always true that we receive material money and possessions in terms of reward for hard work and faithfulness and humility and fear of the Lord. But you are rewarded. It's just not always immediate and it's not always in kind. And often the reward is very spiritual. But when you live, and this is something I just don't want to lose it though in the midst of all this, is that when you live your life by the book, God's word, the Bible, when you live your life faithfully and you live the way that Proverbs has been teaching us to live in the fear of the Lord with an attitude of submission and teachableness, that God is going to reward you with a good life even materially. That tends to be true. You look around, your, look at your own life, look at the lives around you of God's people. It generally is true. It's not a promise. And that's where the health and wealth people go way off the deep end. It's not a promise. And some of the most godly, some of the wisest people are asked to suffer the most for the sake of the kingdom of God. But there is even great blessing in that suffering, as we know from the rest of Scripture. Interesting point when you think of reward and how God rewards faithfulness as you live your life in accordance with his will. There's a point, actually, it's made several times in Proverbs I hadn't really thought about before I got into it this week, that God's intent is for that wealth to build slowly, incrementally. That as we grow in our fear of the Lord, as we grow in our wisdom and humility, that he gives us more and more resources, that he blesses us with more. And that the book of Proverbs actually speaks against get-rich-quick schemes. The idea of getting wealth easily and immediately. That the book of Proverbs, let me give you one example. Uh, Proverbs 13, 11 says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. And again, it's nothing wrong with quick wealth. Nothing wrong with suddenly getting a, a windfall. But the problem is in us. Generally speaking, we don't handle that well. Have you ever read about the stories of lottery winners? It's a very, a lot of very sad stories of people who won the lottery because they weren't prepared to handle it well. And really, God's intent is that we live in faithfulness, and as we live in faithfulness, he adds to our wealth as we grow in our wisdom and maturity to handle it well. 
That leads to the first negative perspective on wealth in the book of Proverbs that I want to mention, which is that wealth is a burden and a temptation. Wealth is a blessing and a reward from God, but it is also very much a burden and a temptation. Proverbs 15, verse 16 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. And what he's acknowledging there is that trouble tends to come with wealth. Problems, responsibilities, distractions, all tends to come with wealth. We easily forget when we're thinking about things we want or don't have. It's easy to forget how much trouble comes with wealth. The more money and possessions that the Lord puts in our hands, the greater the responsibility that comes with it as well. God gives us wealth. Whatever to, to whatever degree God has given you wealth in your life, he's given it to you for you to be a good steward, not for self-indulgence. He's given it to you to be a good steward of it, a good manager of it, not for your self-indulgence. It's interesting, it helps me to look at it in light of how God talks about other blessings in our lives that come with burdens and temptations. Interesting that when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, he's writing to a church that's under persecution, he's writing to a church that's very divided, he's writing to a church that has lots of problems, it's a distressed church. And when he writes to that church, he brings up the topic of marriage. Now, one of the greatest blessings that God gives us is marriage, but you notice in the middle of the book of 1 Corinthians, he says to them, it's good for you to be single. It's good for you to give that blessing of marriage up so that you're not distracted by the extra responsibilities that come from being a spouse. And so it's very similar to wealth. You see, don't you see the same attitude of Agur in his prayer? Saying, you know, Lord, I just want to serve you faithfully. And I realize that if you give me the gift of marriage, as wonderful as it is, it's going to be a distraction and a burden and a responsibility for me that will make it more difficult for me to live in service. Those who are parents, you know what it felt like. When you first heard you were pregnant the first time, you were terrified. As joyful, you know, it had that, that twin emotional effect of great joy and great terror because you understood that with the blessing came great responsibility, a lot of heartache, a lot of burdens. Matter of fact, I know the fear and the joy got much more intense with every succeeding child that we found out about we were pregnant with because I had a much more intensive understanding of the responsibilities and the heartache and the burdens that came along with the incredible blessing. My wife and I, when, many years ago, when my oldest son went to college, we uh, decided we were living in a church-owned home, so we didn't own any property ourselves. We had many people say, you know, you really should try to invest in some property. So we tried to combine purposes, so we actually bought a rental house, a small rental house, where he was going to college in Lancaster, so that he could live there to help him, but also to help us build some equity and, and have some property to own. And it, it was a very wise investment. To this day, I'll say it was a wise thing for us to do investment-wise. But after many years, as the house got older and we had more and more trouble getting good tenants in there, and towards the end, we had some really bad tenants in there, that rental property, which had been such a great blessing to us and a wise investment, became a big burden and a big distraction, and I was so glad to sell it, so glad to get rid of that responsibility. And it's just another of many illustrations of how wealth can bring with it things that distract and burden you. And, and Agur, as he prays this prayer, he understands that. He understands that with the responsibility also comes a lot of temptation. 
He says, Lord, just give me my daily bread. Make sure that I don't have to worry about where the next meal is going to come from and whether I have a roof over my head or whether I have clothes on my back. Just get me to that point because I don't want to be distracted and I don't want to be overburdened and I don't want the temptations that come with both poverty and riches. He says there in verse 9 of, of Proverbs 30, he says, if he's rich, he knows he's going to be tempted to say, who is the Lord? And translate that, who needs the Lord, is really how that's, you should, you know, that's what he means by it. Who needs the Lord? I'm rich. And that is probably the biggest pitfall for somebody who has a lot of wealth, is that you lose that sense of daily dependence upon the Lord. But the other temptation is if he's poor. He says, if I'm poor, then I'm going to be tempted to covet what belongs to other people. And I'm going to be tempted to steal and thereby dishonor the name of my God. Because he was so driven by his fear of the Lord and his desire to glorify God, he didn't want to be poor so that he would be tempted to covet and maybe even steal in order to have what others have. Isn't this the same thing that Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer? You just said it a few moments ago. Lord, give us today our daily bread and lead us not into temptation. Isn't that the same exact prayer that Agur, Agur prayed in Proverbs 30? Give me my daily bread and please don't lead me into temptation. And he knew that both poverty and riches would increase the temptations of his life. It's really, and again, going back to the other passage we read, let me read it for you again from from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And as you listen to it this time, think about Agur's prayer. Agur's prayer was, Lord, give me my daily bread and don't lead me into the temptations of poverty or riches. Listen to what Paul says in, in uh, 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 6. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Lord, Give me my daily bread. Give me the food, shelter, and clothing that I need to live in this world. And we can be content with that, Paul says. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's really the same prayer as Agur's prayer. Give me my daily bread and lead me not into the temptations of poverty or riches. In John Piper's writings, if you've read much of that, you know that continually he keeps challenging us to strive for simplicity in life. To, in relation to our money and possessions and responsibilities in life, to basically be on a wartime mentality all the time. To be on a war, see yourself as being on a wartime mission and to not allow your life to get so burdened by your possessions and your wealth that you're distracted from what's really important in life. And that's what Agur's praying for as well. And that points to the greatest temptation and danger of wealth, which is that wealth is a false hope. Wealth is a false hope. Agur's fears are related to the fact, if you look at them in verse 9, it's related to the fact that both the rich and the poor are tempted to make wealth their hope in life. The rich put their hope in the wealth that they have, in their bank accounts, in their investments, in their 
possessions and their properties. That's where the rich put their hope. The poor also put their hope in those things. But they live their life coveting them because they don't have them. And both are not putting their hope in the Lord. Both of them are sinning. In Proverbs 18, verse 11, it says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Mind you, doesn't it, of what Jesus taught about the rich man who had such wealth that he tore down his barns and built bigger barns so that he could have greater hope and greater security. And God says, you fool, today your life is taken from you, then what do you have? The rich man finds his hope and his security in his fortress of wealth, and the poor man covets that hope and security from afar. Ray Ortland, in his sermon on Proverbs 30, makes this statement. I thought it was just a great summary of this temptation to make money your false hope. He says, money has almost a hypnotic spell over us. It makes us feel secure and in control and important. That's what money does to us. The problem is not in money. The problem is in us. Is that money makes us feel like we're important, that we're in control and secure. That's making wealth a false hope. I often reflect on the fact of how different, when you think of food and shelter and clothing, your daily bread, I, I often think about how different my house is today than the house I grew up in. I was born to parents who were in their mid-40s, so they were really old enough to be my grandparents, and so there was a big generational gap, and, and my parents actually were teenagers during the Great Depression of the 1930s. And you could tell from the house I grew up in that that was true because they weren't wealthy by the world standards at all, certainly by biblical standards, but not by the world standards. We were, I think, what you would call in the world standards lower middle class. But in our house, we had in the basement, we had on the one end of the basement, there was a room that was just cinder block room, but we call it, my mom always called it the root cellar. But what it was is you had shelves on each side on all three sides of the room and on those shelves were dozens upon dozens upon dozens of canned fruit and canned vegetables that she had put away. Underneath those shelves were big bins that were filled with hundreds of potatoes. And then on another part of the basement, we had a huge size of a Cadillac, this freezer that we had on the other, other end of the basement. And in that freezer, it was filled to the top with a side of beef, usually they buy a side of beef, and so you'd have steaks all the way, cut, take about half that space, and the rest of it was filled with, with frozen vegetables and foods and a lot of ice cream. <laughs> but on the, on the main floor of the house, that's just in the basement, but on the main floor we had a room we called the laundry, and in the laundry there were cabinets on both sides, well actually on one side, covering one whole wall in the laundry, and in those cabinets were just stacks and stacks of canned food and boxed food that didn't need to be kept cold. It's kind of like I grew up in Wegmans, you know? It was really, <laughs> literally, it, it, you know, somebody dropped an atomic bomb. We could have survived in that house for months and months. And I think, that's not how I live. You know, I wake up in the morning and I pour myself a bowl of cereal and there's no milk. I just run down to the store and get milk. You know, that's about as far ahead as my planning goes for my food. And we're both wrong. There's wisdom in providing and storing up, but you can't make it your security. 
Your security is in the Lord. When God's people were about to enter into the promised land, they're sitting there on those stormy banks of the Jordan we were just singing about a little bit ago. Looking into the promised land, God said to them, he said, when you get into these houses that you didn't build, and when you start to enjoy the grapes off the vineyards that you didn't plant, and when your storehouses are full, don't forget God, because that's what happens. That's your nature. When you get wealthy, you're going to forget God, and you're going to say, like Agar feared he might say, who is the Lord? Who needs the Lord? And that's one of the greatest dangers of wealth. We tend to forget God when our cupboards are full, when our freezers are full, when our bank accounts are full. Proverbs 11, verse 28 says, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. That's such a consistent message of Scripture, because we're so prone to make our possessions our God. You know how all of our currency, at least for today and maybe tomorrow, all of our currency says, in God we trust. Do you know when that was put on our currency? Some people think it was put on at the beginning, our founding fathers, it wasn't. Some other people think it was done in the 1950s, and that's just when it was made the motto of the country, but that's not when it was put on the currency. It was actually put on the currency right in the midst of the Civil War. As our country went through a time of great devastation that shook our country to the very core of who we were, and it was godly people who said, let's put this message on our money so that we always remember that it's in God we trust, not this currency. As we said a moment ago, Proverbs teaches us that better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and the trouble with it. But I'm sure some of you are sitting there thinking, well, wait a minute. Wouldn't it, you know, we agree that it's better to have wisdom and poverty than wealth and the lack of the fear of the Lord. We'd all agree with that. But I'm sure some of you are sitting there thinking, well, wait, isn't the best case scenario to have the fear of the Lord and wisdom and wealth? And that is actually what the scriptures teach. That's the best case scenario, is to be wealthy while still having the fear of the Lord and humility and dependence upon him because wealth is a great opportunity. Wealth is a tremendous opportunity. And praise God, I am so thankful for godly, wealthy people who use and are good stewards of their resources and use it the way God intends. Where would the kingdom of God be without them? Wisdom plus wealth should produce generosity. That's what the scripture teaches. When you have the fear of the Lord and humility and dependence upon the Lord and wealth, the result of that should be generosity. And that wealth should be given away in two directions, according to Proverbs and the rest of scripture. First of all, it should be given to those in need. Having wealth, as you all do, is a great opportunity to be able to give to those in need, to be God-like to give to those in need without any condition. Proverbs 14, verse 21 and 31 says, Blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. 
And that was Agur. Remember, Agur said, I don't want to dishonor the name of my God. That was what was driving him. Well, you want to honor the name of your God? Well, take the wealth that he's given you and give it to those in need because that reflects God's glory because that's what he's done for you. Proverbs 11, verses 24 and 25 says, One gives freely and grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Now, you might listen to that and say, oh, wow, that's an Old Testament ethic. You know, you're faithful, and, and you, you give, and then God will give to you. And again, Proverbs are not promises. Not in that same sense. It's an observation that God tends to bless those who are generous. And the reason that he tends to bless those who are generous is because he wants his blessings to keep flowing. What he doesn't like is when we stop up the system, when we clog it up by hoarding instead of giving. He wants you to enjoy what it means to be a reflection of the gospel by giving out of grace to those in need because that's what he's done for us. The reward that we get is not necessarily going to be money and possessions. It's not going to be immediate, and it probably won't be in kind, but it'll be great if you reflect God's glory by humbly giving. And what you get back in currency is spiritual currency, the spiritual currency of joy and peace and satisfaction. That's what Jesus was getting at when he said in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Give and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. There's great joy in giving to others. Great satisfaction, so much more satisfaction than you'll get from that new high-definition television or that third, fourth car or whatever it is that you're tempted to go after to provide satisfaction. Being generous with your wealth is what really provides joy and satisfaction. You know, we're born takers. We're born thieves. We're born as the kind of people who covet everything and resent everyone else for what they have that we don't have. That's the nature we're born with. But God sent his only son into the world so that we could be changed, so that we could be forgiven for all that greed and selfishness and materialism and become like him. As we read a few moments ago from 2 Corinthians 8, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he is rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the gospel. He paid the price for your selfishness. He paid the price for your greed. He paid the price for your materialism so that you might be forgiven, so that you might be born again and be made a new creature and given a new heart that wants to give. And there's great blessing in feeding that new nature and giving to those in need. It's interesting that when Paul says over in Ephesians 4, he's talking to thieves. And again, we're all covetous and thieves by nature. But he's talking specifically to people who have made a living by thieves, and he says this about what they should do. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And that's what repentance is, isn't it? Stop coveting, stop stealing, go out and work hard, be faithful, do what you're called to do, work hard, God will bless you with wealth, and when he gives you wealth, turn around and give it to somebody else. And that's really what repentance looks like for all of us. That's being Christ-like. Second area that we need to give to, the great opportunity of giving is in giving to the kingdom, giving to the Lord himself. That should be our first priority. 
In Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth. Well, what does that mean? Well, it could mean anything we've talked about this morning in terms of obedience in regard to your wealth. But he's talking specifically about the tithe. He says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats bursting with wine. Again, that's a general observation, not a promise or a guarantee. But that is generally how life works. You trust the Lord with what he has given you in wealth. You give the first fruits to him. And first fruits, that concept of first fruits that God taught his people in the Old Testament and it still applies to his people in the New Testament, the concept of first fruits is that the money you give to the Lord and to his kingdom comes off the top. It's the first and best you give to the Lord. And you do that as an act of trust. Just like you give one-seventh of your week to the Lord in the Lord's day, you give one-tenth of your income to the Lord in your tithe, it's an act of trust. It's saying, Lord, I'm going to give you the first, I'm going to give you the best right off the top because I trust that you're going to provide for me. I know that when I was early in my marriage, early in my adult life, and I'm learning how to tithe, and we had so little to work with back then compared to now, that I would start writing out and paying the bills and writing the bills and I, I would start with all the biggest bills first. I'd write and pay the biggest bills and I'd work my way down but I always paid the tithe last because I wasn't sure there was going to be enough there for the tithe when I was at the end and you know when it comes to being a bill collector God is a lot less um, imminent maybe and a little, lot less uh, physically demanding in terms of paying what I owe to him as opposed to what I owe to the electric company or the landlord or whatever and so since the Lord was so much more gracious, I would wait until the end to see if I had enough to pay the tithe. And that was a real lesson in trust I had to learn down the road, is that the Lord withheld blessing from me until I started to say, I'm going to pay the tithe first. I'm going to write that check first, even if I don't know where the money for some of these smaller bills are going to come from. And I'm going to trust him to provide. And I'm here to stand and say before you this morning, he always has. He's been very good to me and my family. He is faithful. You can trust him. He rewards faithfulness. He takes care of his own. It doesn't mean you're not going to suffer. It doesn't mean I haven't suffered financially. But he always provides. And there's always satisfaction, joy, peace in giving to him first and giving to others with the wealth that he's provided. That's the good life. That's what it means to be Christ-like. That's what builds the church. You're never going to know greater satisfaction than giving of your wealth to a missionary or to a church plant or to someone who is a teacher of the word in some setting and watching lives be changed with the resources you have put in the hands of others to make it happen. There is no greater joy. There is no greater investment. The prayer here at the end of the book of Proverbs is, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches. But I think if you put all the rest of the book of Proverbs with it, and all the rest of scripture with it, I don't think Agar would mind if I paraphrased a little bit. I think really what he's praying, he's saying this, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches, just give me my daily bread. But if you do, call me to be poor. Or if you do call me to be rich, give me the humility and the dependence and the fear of the Lord and the wisdom to do well with that to your glory. Whatever your state in life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you've given. Thank you for the riches of your word. Thank you for the riches of our spiritual life in Jesus Christ. Thank you for 
this family, this church family, for the many ways you've blessed us. And thank you, Lord, for calling us to be stewards of all that you've given. Give us the fear of the Lord. Give us humility. Give us a spirit of dependence and teachableness. And Lord, use us to bring the truth of the gospel to those who need to hear. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.